You're listening to Festival Grasp. A podcast diving into the business and culture of the music festival world. With your hosts, Mario. And Shanae. Well, welcome everybody to the newscast in this week's edition. How to make virtual festivals way better. Toronto just got a social distance supper club and show lounge. Music festivals create their own bubble to get partiers back. New Sculpture Park in Las Vegas offers permanent home to Burning Man art. Drive-ins won't save live music. But first, a college student in the UK has developed a software that allows visually impaired people to create electronic music with ease. After performing at a music festival in 2017, Shay Leader was in a serious car accident that left him hospitalized and he suffered from severe eye injuries and is now visually impaired. Through the difficulties he faces every day and his background in sound design, he was inspired to create something that helps others in a similar situation. While the specifics in the app have not been released, Leader's software allows users to create electronic music with less reliance on sight than your average digital audio workstation. I love this. I mean, absolutely love it. I can't believe it wasn't out sooner. <laughs> I thought, I mean, you don't need to look at the music, but I, I, I imagine like all these softwares, you, you probably do need to have that visual component because there's timelines and you have to look for things, um, drop on, like, you know, drop music into stuff and build your track. But for it to not have to rely on the site, I think this is fantastic. And, you know, people can read with Braille if they can't see. And I imagine that there must be some really interesting technological advancements that make this possible where you could interact with a program without needing to see what you're doing. So however that's happening, I think this is fabulous. I, I don't think someone's creativity, especially when it comes to anything in the arts, should be limited by a faculty that you're missing. We're at a point in our technological evolution as a civilization that this is great that it's reaching the these potentially disadvantaged people, but opening them up to the same privileges that many others can have. This is fabulous. Yes, I think it's creating equality by providing a better opportunity. All right. How to make virtual festivals way better. This article here by Anselm Engel, writing in the BrokeAssStuart.com blog. And so, of course, you know, Burning Man went virtual this year. And we've had other online festivals that we've spoken about here. Outside Inside Lands, all streamed on Twitch. There was Glastonbury's uh, Shangri-La, who went virtual as Lost Horizon. He goes on to write here, he, he's basically criticizing these virtual reality experiences, comparing them to like fake meat was in 2005, saying uh, that it, it was better than it was, but not fooling anyone. And he says that the most fascinating bits of virtual Burning Man were, were the worlds that threw accuracy and reality to the wind, like a series of domes floating in a fractal sky that would be impossible in a world with gravity and only three dimensions. But he also goes on to say that, uh, you know, there are things that you don't get through these virtual festivals, one of them being something that, Sinead, you don't want, which is sand in your eyes, in your hair, in, your, in every crevice of your body. But he goes on to say, like, that's part of the beauty and part of the experience of going to festivals is being in those elements and actually living through them. It adds a sense of identity and cohesiveness and feeling like you're feeling a real part of it. But he's making these distinctions here. And then he asks, what happens when virtual events embrace the possibilities of VR? More than 100 or so little meeple running around a virtual space bogs it down. So instead of building a massive event 
that needs to duplicate once there are 100 meeple in it. He calls people meeple. Uh, let's shrink the space and let it get crowded. He says, I don't need the entire Indio Polo field of Coachella, just the front row. <laughs> Animate the background with a CG crowd so it's not empty. But damn, I get the best view in the house. The pit is crowded, people are cheering, and it starts to feel right. So he goes on to say that Lost Horizon did a great job because they created this 3D show in a club, and it was just big enough for 100 people and made it feel intimate. He's basically saying here, Shanae, that he the way to make live festivals better is to make them more intimate so that you're not feeling like you're kind of lost in a virtual scape that's just too large to ever cover. And I think maybe he's right in terms of getting inside a crowd at a dance festival is probably not something we're going to have anytime soon. And so creating that in a virtual landscape will definitely make it a bit more realistic in terms of the fact that you're not you're not feeling drowned out, like it's there's just too much space to cover. And another way to make virtual festivals better is that you could have a virtual merchant table with print on demand. So if you buy a shirt, a message pops up and says, do you want to wear it now? And then boom, your avatar has the band logo or the DJ logo on your back. And then as that happened, you also did actually order the shirt and it's going to get printed and sent to you at your house so you can have it later. So it's basically like that experience of buying the shirt. You not only wore it in the virtual world, but you literally bought it and it's coming to you uh, the size that you want and everything like that. Now, of course, he's kind of spitballing here, but I like his ideas. And he goes on to finish. If density is a selling point, then don't sell me a place to get away from the crowds. Give me a place to get into a crowd, my crowd. He says, gone are the days of three dozen VIP cabanas at Outside Lands. Heck, let's make this a VIP. Put a custom wallpaper skin on my cabana and overlay a virtual couch on the one in my living room. Sitting on virtual couches <laughs> is a thing we can do in VR. So let's do it. This is just the beginning of virtual events. COVID is here for the rest of the year, probably 2021 as well. Learn it now, do it right, and next summer will be better. I think he makes great points here, Shanae. We've talked about it. I think next year is going to be a combination between this virtual landscape worlds, these 3D worlds, this you know virtual live streaming, and then potentially a smaller sort of VIP, uh, very expensive, exclusive opportunity where people are getting tested and everything is safe. But that's kind of prohibitive for a lot of people. Um, so it's going to be a reality next year that we want these virtual landscapes. And he's bringing up a couple of... What, what do you think? Do you think his ideas would make virtual landscapes better? I definitely think they would do because now they're adding an element of interactivity and giving people that feeling that they're missing. There's always room for improvement. We're never going to say that like what one festival did was enough for a virtual landscape or um, experience because we can always improve on it. And as technology grows, even throughout 2020, I think that we'll see a lot of changes from what we, we expect right now to what we would expect summer 2021. Toronto just got a social distance supper club and show lounge. The medley has taken over a space that used to be a theater since the 1970s at Young and Davisville, if, if you know Toronto. It's run by a group of theater professionals. They have nightly programming between theater, music, and stand-up comedy. But what they do is they provide automatic AI temperature scanning at the entrance. They have UV air filtration throughout their venue, hydrostatic sanitation between shows, and they're converting all hand-washing sinks to touchless adding server call buttons to tables to reduce traffic, digital menus, and their staff is continuously trained as part of their COVID protocols. The reason I want to talk about this is because as we start to see allowances for nightclubs and 
lounges and different places stepping in to provide some sort of service. This just shows you all the things you can do to be extra cautious and careful for your attendees. Yeah. Wow. I want to go. I mean, they've really gone through a lot of trouble to create this really safe space. And I I mean, I really hope it works. It sounds like there's some pretty advanced technology going on here. I'm just surprised that it came together so quickly. I haven't done a lot of research to find out about the people behind this, but I'm definitely going to do that now that you've piqued all my interest. I, I will say, um, I, I don't know, I, I'm kind of confused. Like they've spent so much money, it seems, and it's a big investment and that may pay off in the short term. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is this is not going to be something that every you know owner of a club or or an indoor space can, can potentially invest in. And so I, I'm wondering whether like, is this an experiment? Uh, is the money coming from somewhere almost on a grant basis where, you know, they're being supported by some deep pockets that are trying some new things, using it as a bit of a guinea pig, seeing if it works. And if it does, they move they move forward with it um, in some other venues around the city uh, and then use it as an example for, for other uh, metropolises in North America and around the world. I'm certain that this has been thought about and tried or is being tried or being done in Europe currently. So I, yeah, I'm just really curious. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. I do. I want to go. It's in our hometown. So we might as well go. Do you want to go? We can go. Definitely, we'll just do, yeah. We'll ask him if we can run a podcast out of there. <laughs> I want to add that I think, like you said, this may not be the answer for every venue. But when we see venues completely shut down because they aren't able to operate in a way that would provide them with any means of profit or breaking even, then this might be the thing that lets them survive until they can go back to normal. Absolutely. What I really love is the automatic AI temperature scanning at the entrance. I mean, my goodness. They are definitely living in the future. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our Music Festival newscast and subscribe to our Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. Next up, music festivals create their own bubbles to get partiers back. Now, guys, we know that the sporting leagues around the world have been implementing these bubbles, which means that anybody who's inside the bubble has been tested and cleared of having any positive testing of coronavirus, which would then suggest that uh, there could be no spread unless somebody either left the bubble and came back with it or someone came from outside the bubble that wasn't tested and spread it inside the bubble. So essentially it's creating a COVID-free environment for all the participants. And this is the idea of this Utopia Music Festival, which took place over the Labor Day holiday weekend, September 4th to 7th in Pennsylvania, where open air gatherings are currently capped at 250 people. Now in this article, it goes on to state that the event also served as a potential new model for the future, where all attendees were screened with a COVID-19 test a few days before the event and then again at the door in the effort to create this said bubble. So mass testing like this is catching on. Last week, the founder of Croatia's Lighthouse Festival launched a 60-second gargling-based COVID-19 test that is currently available over-the-counter in Austria. Ravel Hotel in New York made waves over the summer by offering rapid tests to revelers at its crowded rooftop parties. And then in a recent Global Nightlife Recovery Plan report released by nightlife consulting group Vibelab, 90-minute tests are cited as a potential method to screen guests at festivals and clubs. Now, as the weather gets colder and outdoor events are no longer feasible, 
Testing is probably one of the safest solutions for throwing events, says Vive Labs co-founder Lutz Leichenring, a former spokesperson for the Berlin Club Commission. Now, while additional expenses and efforts of testing may be prohibitive to many attendees and organizers, the freedom that waits on the other side makes it worthwhile for some party goers. It goes on here to say the way that these tests work. A few days before the event, the staff and guests are required to visit verified medical facilities in multiple locations. RT-PCR tests are administered, which detect the virus's genetic material. And then the nasal swab is sent to the lab. So this is the traditional way to find out if you have COVID. It usually takes three to four days, sometimes up to a week. Or guests could alternatively request a $150 mail-in kit from a company called Vault which tests are then monitored by medical professionals via Zoom. Now, then these results are sent directly to the festival to remove the chance that they could be forged. And they try to eliminate false negatives with a second test that is administered on the day of the festival. So when the cars arrive on site, they're spaced six feet apart in a quarantined area where staff administers a 15-minute rapid test called SOFIA-2 SARS antigen FIA, which is manufactured by Quidel. Now, these rapid tests are less effective than the ones we just mentioned, the PC3R test with the nasal swab, and then especially for asymptomatic cases where you're not showing symptoms. But the trade-off is that they're a lot faster. So at Utopia, according to Resincal, two ticket holders tested positive for the virus in the initial round and four others were turned away at the door having either tested positive or having arrived in a vehicle with someone who did test positive. Now, full refunds were issued to those people. And Redson Cow goes on to say, we're getting people tested who would not necessarily get tested otherwise. I believe in many of these cases, they were asymptomatic and would not have otherwise known. So this is really important. Now, Sinead, I mean, when I was reading this, I'm thinking to myself, if you're going to have a small festival where people can come and you're trying to physically distance them, the issue is always going to be that it is a party and, you know, anything can break down and there's only so much you can enforce when people want to have a good time and they're drinking and their inhibitions are being lowered and wanting to get closer to others and disregarding some of the protocols that should be in place. And so in order to bypass all of that, if you could have events where you create these bubbles where people are being tested and making sure that there is a COVID-free environment and everyone can do what they usually do at a festival. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that as long as these people are being tested prior and they go into essentially a safe space, you should still try to practice some level of social distancing and just to, you know, be extra precautious. But they've taken those additional steps to make sure everybody that goes in is COVID free. And I think that that really is the future of gatherings if we want to be able to be around people without the fear of exposure. I know that there's another festival in Pennsylvania that has done this a few times, Elements Festival, who over the summer, I believe they've had two so far called In My Elements, and they've done this like smaller programming, but the bubble, it just, well, it's good to see that they are taking it seriously. They're not just saying, yeah, we're going to do testing, but then still let you go. Absolutely. You know, last week we mentioned the 25,000 person EDM festival in 
Taiwan. And essentially what they did was create their own bubble. They made sure that they were pretty much COVID free. They're, you know, screening people who are coming into the country. And if you leave the country, you have to come back and be quarantined until you're ready to be reintroduced into their society. So this is the safest way. But the issue is Resnikau goes on to say that, um, you know, it's a costly affair. Uh, his profit margins were definitely bitten into down to almost 8% uh, from 30%, which was pre-pandemic. That's a huge hit on the ability to have enough money to keep doing these events. But, you know, he goes on to say at the very end here, large crowds are gathering for private parties and illegal events all over the country. And of course, we've talked a lot about those, these play graves. And he considers a lack of official guidance from state and federal obstacles to getting things overboard. If it's going to happen anyway, he says, let's do it with the strictest protocols and keep everyone safe. It's really hard to do harm reduction for COVID at events like concerts and music festivals. People are under the influence, their inhibitions are lowered, and the likelihood of them maintaining physical distance is highly diminished. All it takes is one person to come in with a false negative test to get everyone sick. And I think that's the point. This is the issue. You can't really avoid this because people will not, unfortunately, behave when they're having a good time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you talked about the profit margin and that it's a much lower percentage uh, doing these small events. But we spoke about last week, you know, wanting to see a lower a lower rate for DJs. And by having a, a lower profit margin, you can, if you can prove that you're putting on a safe event, if you can get the government to back you up for what you're doing, you are able to get sponsors and build up that profit margin if that's what you need. But I think festival companies and production companies should really just be focusing on providing a safe experience and creating brand loyalty. Because if you were there for people this whole time during COVID, when things go back to normal, you're going to be the first festival they go to. Absolutely. And look, just in closing and wrapping this conversation up on this topic, you do remember that story that you uh, brought up uh, at the early August in one of our podcasts, we were talking about uh, the Virgin Money Unity Arena in the UK. Well, that arena, that production has now been officially closed. So all the remaining shows have been canceled because there was a spike of infection cases from the events that they did have there. While the rumors say that this attributed to the venue, there are other people who deny that fact that there's other things afoot here. But whether it was because people weren't wearing masks or lack of sanitation or whatever else it may have been, it seems that this effort to have these, what were they, raised platforms with the rails on them, that something went wrong there. And and that kind of puts into question all the other distanced events that are happening, drive-ins uh, or otherwise, whether these are events that will essentially be the first ones that they're not shown to be COVID. Like if, if they become super spreader events, even with these measures in place, the only strategy left is to have a two-test protocol and create a bubble. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to just say I'd like to follow that story uh, a bit more as weeks go by for social distanced events because... I know in the UK numbers are rising. And so I feel it could have just been a company decision or a government decision that they don't want to allow these sort of events anymore versus the whispers behind the scenes that it's because they they spread so much at that event. I'd like to just see the data um, as it comes in and I may change my stance. But for right now, I feel like it's a little bit 
Yeah. What we do know is that after having had about four or five really successful distance events, they, they have cleared their schedule. There will be no more happening at the Virgin Money Unity Arena, at least for the remainder of this year. A new sculpture park in Las Vegas offers a permanent home to Burning Man art. Area 15 just opened up in the Las Vegas desert, promising to give a permanent home to some of Burning Man's most interesting and beloved art pieces. The space is 52,000 square feet, which has plenty of space for sculptures and art of all shapes and sizes, from a flame-breathing, water-spouting dragon set against the endless desert skies to a 23-foot-tall Japanese maple tree by Symmetry Labs outfitted in 5,000 individual LED lights. Area 15 is on track to open in early 2021. This is great. I I I never actually wondered uh, where all these pieces of art went, um, at least the ones that didn't get burned. But what took them so long to find a home? Uh, I wonder maybe had this been something that they were working on or or did this kind of like did it did they mention how this came about it did not mention how it came about but i do want to point out that there has been a rise in art sculpture experiences where people can stay socially distanced and still view or experience an, an artistic setting it sounds like something that had been planned we know that birdie man did purchase land in the nevada desert and i'm wondering if this is uh if this is part of that uh area that they that they own so that'd be interesting to dig in a little deeper, but I'd, I'd love to go. It's, I guess it's not open till early 2021. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that, but great story. Okay, drive-ins won't save live music is this article by Josh Terry via Vice Asia. Now he writes in here, drive-ins are such a new frontier for live music. So there aren't any comprehensive statistics on how many drive-in concerts have taken place since the pandemic started, but they're popping up everywhere. They aren't going away anytime soon, at least until there's a vaccine or colder climate shut them down for the winter. So, so far, things have gone smoothly. Fans are staying masked and distanced while performers are enjoying an opportunity to play. Giamanco says, we've been blessed to figure out a way to keep this live entertainment alive. My team gets rapid tested weekly. Everything is outside. All of our touch points get wiped down every 15 minutes. The bathrooms get sanitized. We're doing everything that the CDC tells us to do. The CDC there being the Center for Disease Control. Now, it does mention here in the article that these drive-ins are expensive to produce. The promoters need to rent the venue, build the stage, hire workers, assure that customers wear masks and stay in their parking spots. And then, of course, they have to pay their performers. One promoter here says, I almost have to sell out to make money. We don't provide concessions at our events. We don't sell alcohol or beverages or things like that because we're trying to create as much touch-free social distancing as possible. So while most drive-ins don't sell concessions, other promoters like Chicago's Lakeshore Drive-In provide concert goers with a QR code so that they can order food and beverages from their vehicle. However, due to the economic realities of hosting drive-in events at scale, these events largely exclude smaller artists or bands that you could see for $15 at a local independent club before the pandemic. However, it is something that at the moment, if you have $240 to buy a ticket with and you own a car and you're willing to go party in that car and not order any booze and not order any food, that this could be a way 
that you can keep, uh, you know, your party going necessarily if you, if you like. And, and if you want to look at it as supporting musical talent, that's another thing that you could do. But it's, it certainly seems to be um, not just difficult for the promoters from a business model point of view, but also very expensive. So there's a certain sector of society that used to be able to go out and enjoy, you know, $15 concert tickets um, at small venues that now can't do that. So not only are these fans not getting to see the talents, but also the talent who can't draw enough people to these drive-ins for a sellout, they're not even getting the gig because, well, they just won't draw enough people. So this is basically why the drive-ins are not going to save live music. And of course, there's Audrey Fix Schaefer here. She's the head of communications for the National Independent Venue Association. And she says, I applaud any promoter for trying new things and for being creative. But the most important thing to remember is none of these things will keep the business afloat. Ugh, dire words indeed. Indeed. Um, I know in Canada, it's a bit different. And in Ontario, it's different because we do still have all of our concessions open and they do still sub- sell alcohol. So I think it's it's an interesting model that the U.S. has taken and one that they have to, I guess, reevaluate to see what can they do to keep people safe, but still break even or make a profit. Yeah, I think a better version of this would be the bubble that we that we just talked about. Uh, however, it's clear that it, it's not a sustainable practice. It's just difficult for everyone and really just a stopgap until we can get back to a semblance of normality like parties in Taiwan. Definitely. And I just want to say I would personally pay more if I knew that I was allowed to bring my own food and alcohol to an event. I would pay more for my ticket and then still have a designated driver. But they, I think they'd actually make more money than hoping that somebody's going to pay for concessions. You know, you could still have some level of concessions because not everybody's going to bring their own, even if that's just as simple as like bottles of water and some French fries. Somebody will buy it, right? Sitting there for six hours or however long the event is. But personally, I would pay more for a ticket if I could bring my own. I'm not sure I would care at all to uh, party in a car. However, I would be happy to sit there sober. I don't, I don't think I, I would enjoy being confined in a vehicle while I was in, drinking my favorite beer and crumbling my burger all over my lap. But I mean, if some people, if that's what they, if that gets them closer to feeling normal, then then that's okay. I, I also, I wonder, because when I think about these drive-ins, I'm wondering, do people check whether people bring their own alcohol and are the drivers driving away sober? It's a worrying situation for harm reduction. Yeah, there's a big concern about people driving under the influence. But aside from that, security checks really vary from place to place. And I personally went to a drive-in. I had fun because I haven't been to an event all summer or all 2020. And I definitely would not replace my festival experience, but it was a good placeholder. Yeah. Now, just in perspective, the average ticket sellout at these venues is around 200 to 700 car capacity. So um, that's quite a range there, but let's call it 500 and the tickets are $240 and you get one night, right? So that, I mean, that that seems expensive and the promoters have to sell out in order to have it be viable. I mean, that's why they're limited to the acts that they hire because they're trying to ensure a sellout. Yeah. And those venues, at least in the States, are, are massive venues because the drive-in I went to maybe had 200 vehicles at most, like at most. And they definitely did not sell out. It was a like a six hour lineup. So they had quite a few artists playing. And yeah, I would I would like to see the business model on that. Six hours in a car. Goodness. Not my cup of tea. 
Yeah. In Ontario, (laughs) the rules are definitely a lot more strict. Um, You do have to stay in your vehicle. We sat like with the trunk open, sitting in the trunk. So kind of a way around it. But if you had a car, you weren't allowed to do that. And then by the end of the night, they were enforcing very strict rules. Your feet weren't allowed touching the ground. Are you are you allowed to open your door, your windows, that kind of thing? You're allowed to open your windows, but you're not allowed to hang out of your window. So there would not really be a reason. If you had a sunroof, if you had a sunroof, you could stand out through the sunroof, but you couldn't go out through the side window. So there was just rules that didn't quite make sense, but it was, you know, uh, a company who had to follow bylaws and bylaw officers were there. So it really, um, it was a weird experience. And I think they, if they had to continue doing drive-ins next year, that they really have to look through these protocols and have things make a little more sense. I will say there is one way I will do this driving in a car. If, if, if we rent a limo and uh, we go and park it, <laughs> I will feel very comfortable in a plush environment with a bar, plenty of room to maneuver and leg space. So I'm, I'm happy doing it that way, but otherwise uh, I'm out. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on another week's Festival Grasp. Make sure to subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or via your chosen podcast collector, so you'll never miss us talking into your ears again. And while you're at it, if you find value in what we are discussing, rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's like telling a friend about it, but better. And it gives us a chance in that big old world out there. I know we're just getting to know each other, but come on, show us some love. We're here for you. You're here for us. So let's do this thing. To sign up as an expert guest on the show, to leave us a question or message, or to jar tip your support, follow the appropriate links in the show notes. Be sure to keep tuning in weekly for our music festival newscast and subscribe to Deep Dives, our bi-monthly in-depth topical discussion show with interviews and guests that will bring you insight and knowledge. Link in the show notes. This podcast edited by GBA Recordings. For me, Mario. And Shanae. See you next time. Bye.